Hello and welcome to another episode of the Public Affairs in Practice uh, podcast. Um, this uh, time I'm joined by Craig Jones, uh, MBE, so I mustn't forget the, the title which you have, uh, Craig, uh, who's the Executive um, Chair of uh, Fighting with Pride and and I'm hugely uh, uh, you know thrilled to be joined by um, Craig, um, not least because of some of the work that Fighting with Pride has done over the last couple of years. Um, which he's going to talk about, which is hugely fascinating from a public affairs and communications perspective. So, Craig, look, thank you very much for joining me uh, today. Do you want to just give the audience a little bit more of a flavour about your background um, and, you know, how you ended up at Fighting with Pride? Well, Stuart, first of all, thanks very much for inviting me along today. It's really great to to talk to you. Um, I've, I've had a very curious career and, and I'm not sure I know what the common thread in the roles uh, that I've done is, but I I joined the Royal Navy in 1989 at Britannia Royal Naval College, Dartmouth. I never really wanted to do anything else other than be a sailor. Uh, and uh, I had a, a, a wonderful career in the armed forces, but it was greatly affected by the fact that for the first 11 years uh, of my time in service, it was illegal against the law to be gay. And had I been caught, I would have been sent to prison for a and a civilian prison because officers can't go to military detention quarters that's simply for being gay simply for being who i am so uh, i was greatly affected by that i met my husband of the last 30 years in uh, 1994 uh, and that really compounded uh, the risks but i stuck with it uh, and i came out on the day that the ban was lifted on the 12th of january uh, 2000. Uh, and I think I'd say I came out of my closet like a rocket <laughs> with with a great sense of injustice uh, about the fact that I'd spent decades watching my colleagues marched over the brow of, of ships to a fate which was, to be honest, unknown and, and certainly unsavoury for them. Um, and I, uh, I was part of changes uh, that have made our armed forces the most inclusive and welcoming of LGBT plus people in the world. Uh, and I've got to be honest, it was a bit of a difficult journey. I had a lot of admirals and generals and air marshals who really weren't sure that they wanted to serve with these rather strange LGBT plus people. Um, but uh, over the years, I supported their nerves and anxiety through that integration. And it is wonderful today to see LGBT plus people serving at the front line of operations all over the world, doing a fantastic job, being part of the team, making our fighting units more operationally effective by their talent. Uh, and, uh, and it's just an amazing thing to do. And most importantly, our armed forces have adopted the, 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 the values of our nation and the values that they protect in battle and in peacetime operations sometimes. So, um, but I knew that I couldn't stay forever. So I need to get on with this question and tell you what happened afterwards. So uh, I left the service in, in uh, 2008, feeling that, well, feeling two things actually, feeling that uh, my work was done. Uh, I had been, and at times, difficult and challenging protagonist of change. Uh, and it was time to do something else. But I also thought that some of the generals and admirals and air marshals had suffered enough. <laughs> so, so um, and uh, 
in defense of them, they had all very kindly done the right thing in the end. Initially, not necessarily for the right reasons, but I think when I left the armed forces, they understood with clarity the diversity business case, and they understood that we get so much more uh, from doing the right thing uh, and from being inclusive and welcoming and creating fantastic workplaces. Um, so I went from one naughty child to another. I then went to Barclays Bank uh, to be global head of diversity for their investment banking and management uh, arenas, and particularly to focus on gender equality. So you probably see why I'm talking about one naughty child to another. Um, but I, I really enjoyed that. And I think it was another really challenging environment, particularly challenging for women in banking and finance. Uh, and I put in place lots of programs there. Uh, which were to uh, enable women to have better careers in the bank. And therefore, again, it's all about the business case, I feel. I, it, it's At my heart, I'm a, an LGBT rights activist. But actually, uh, if you come at it from the business case, everybody gets it so much more easily. Uh, um, but I couldn't do that forever. I did that for about four years. Uh, I was there in the team that supported the integration of Lehman's in New York, which was a really challenging integration of two banks with different cultures. Thoroughly enjoyed it. But um, my original degree was in economics. And there's always been an entrepreneurial edge to me. And I really needed to do something with that. So I set up a healthcare company in 2010. And you probably see now why I say there's no common threads between the jobs that I've done. Uh, whether it be ships, aircraft and missiles or uh, diversity and equality in Barclays or now mental health care. Uh, and um, I set the company up partly to be an entrepreneur, but also because there had been a report on the TV about a hospital called Winterbourne View. And it was providing containment, I think is the way to put it, for people with learning disabilities and mental health issues behind the wire unnecessarily. Uh, and some bad things had happened. And I just felt that the the challenges faced by those communities uh, could be managed and the risks associated could be managed in the community. And that's what my organization did. We created a independent multidisciplinary team with psychiatry and psychology and occupational therapy and all those things and took it to the NHS and said, I think as a tight-knit team, we can support you to help these folks step down from these hospitals and enjoy lives amongst the wider community, which are, are rich and fulfilling and, and great. And we supported, in my five years there, we supported about 70 people to step down. One lady I particularly remember who had been in hospital for 35 years, and she stepped down into her own home. And it's one of the most moving things I've ever experienced. Uh, and it was just wonderful in the life of the business to uh, to watch people find their best lives. But again, that was a slightly intense experience. Uh, we carried a lot of responsibility. Most of our service users were under section of the Mental Health Act. And we really needed to be taken over by another organization. And that happened at the end of 2015, uh, when my business was purchased by uh, the Ontario State Pension Fund uh, and by another service that they owned in the UK. 
Uh, and then something very dangerous happened. I sort of made a botched attempt at retirement, the most unsuccessful thing I have ever done in my life. And I, I had a, you can probably imagine the circumstances. I mean, I had a few of those slightly grand holidays that you might have when you, you know, sold a business and so on and so forth. And I ended up in the Maldives at one stage and in the South Pacific. And, and after six months of that, I just, I couldn't manage the fact that I wasn't actually doing anything. I wasn't achieving anything. There was, it was a really self-indulgent life. And I, and I remember being sat on a, on a sun lounger somewhere, uh, quite tropical and thinking, I need to, I need to look back uh, and, and recognize what's happened in my past and how I've been helped. And, and I thought the thing that really struck me was the battle to save my career because in 1999 a very courageous group of veterans lgbt plus veterans took the united kingdom to the european court of rights to to battle for my right and and the rights of thousands of other people to serve openly in the armed forces um but in the 20 years since then nothing had been done to go back and find those people who were arrested court-martialed, sent to prison, who were outed to their families and friends, who were given criminal records, who had uh, dismissed in disgrace written across their Army, Air Force and Royal Navy records, uh, and who had lived trashed lives, careers lost, families lost, uh, livelihoods lost and peace of mind. Something really needed to be done. Uh, to support them and to find them. The military charities were doing nothing in that space. The government had walked away from any concept of conversation. So I thought really the route through was to tell the story of the ban. So I brought together 10 individuals and said to them, who, who I'd known through my career, people who'd lost their careers, people who had experienced the worst, but also some people who were part of the diversity business case, people who like um, Major Mike Brigham, who had recently served in Afghanistan and was everything that the policy aimed to win. And we created a book called Fighting with Pride. Uh, and they each wrote a chapter and told that story. But by the time I brought the book together, the 10 of us were bloody angry uh, about what had happened. So on the 20th anniversary of the lifting of the ban, uh, we formed Fighting with Pride as a registered charity and began the campaign for change. And I do apologise for a very long intro answer. <laughs> hey, look, no, that's that's fascinating, and I, it's it's really strange. And it, I think you're right to pick up on the the way that attitudes have changed. It, it's shocking that it's only, as you say, the 24th anniversary is coming up of the sort of the lifting of the ban. It's shocking that it was only 24 years ago that you know you couldn't be well, you couldn't be openly gay and 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 serving. On the other hand, it's quite refreshing that that does come as a shock because for many people, especially younger ones, it's just, you know, part of serving. It's part of life that people can now be open and be who they are in a way that not very long ago you couldn't. So when you sort of, as you formed Fighting with Pride, did you have a particular aim in mind for the campaign? I mean, in particular, I mean, it's, it's I mean, I... I Met you, Craig, um, um, through um, many events, uh, and in particular, you often, uh, often this is going to not sound uh, dis, um, 
dismissive anyway, but he often comes as sort of a double act with, with Caroline Page. Uh, and it was very much from an external perspective, my external perspective, the, the two of you that were sort of out taking the campaign to the party conferences and, and to other uh, other environments uh, as well. So did you start off with a particular aim in mind or was it just to raise the profile or what, 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 yeah, what, what did you what did you want to do, I suppose? Well, well, first of all, uh, Caroline, uh, who is my partner in this crime, uh, was one of the 10 authors uh, that I I reached out to. And uh, initially she was a, a joint chair and then became joint chief executive with me uh, in the summer of our first year. And I think um, the business case of what we wanted to do was quite simple. Uh, in the UK, we have something called the Armed Forces Covenant. And the Armed Forces Covenant is the nation's promise that those who stand in harm's way, those who serve the nation during its difficult times, shall themselves not be disadvantaged by their service, and they shall be protected in the difficulties that they might face in life. And I think what we agreed as a team at the very beginning was that the gay ban and its impact was a catastrophic breach of the armed forces covenant it's the nature of service personnel and veterans that we do not leave people behind we do not allow people to to live blighted lives while others live in in satisfaction and i think we looked at the circumstances and said well hang on a second this isn't about rights it's about equality the nation has a concept of how it wants its veterans to live their lives. And I think what we would say is in later life, we want them to live in security and we want to live the, them to live their lives with some degree of comfort. And I think for this whole community that had been lost. So what we wanted to achieve was for those who have criminal convictions, we wanted to see them expunged and removed. We wanted the decades of shame that these veterans have felt to be washed away and replaced by honour, by a recognition of the fact that these amazing individuals met all of the challenges of service in our armed forces, and they met so many other challenges that were unfairly placed in their path, and therefore they shouldn't be considered to be dishonourable, dismissed in disgrace. They should be considered to be heroes. Uh, and particularly those who fought for justice should be considered to be heroes because the justice that they fought for were the values of the United Kingdom today. So I, that was really important. And and the thing which our veterans most commonly say to them, to us, is the single most important factor. It's not compensation. It was the apology on behalf of the nation state made by the prime minister on the 18th of July this year. They overwhelmingly, they needed to feel some sense of justice and a recognition of the fact that what, what was done to them was wrong. So, so that that apology and that expunging of these of these crimes and the changing of records were have been fundamentally important. Um, but there are other things. I think we recognize the fact that lots and lots of our veterans live in fragile accommodation circumstances. Very few of them own their own homes. Many have lived transient lives because of the separation from family. 
uh, and they live many have lived in hostels and all sorts of accommodation so we recognize that that needed to be sorted out and they need some income in later life uh, the opportunities of pensions were denied them and for many their careers have been blighted by criminal records for offenses that have no place in modern law so compensation is essential not because of uh, some desire that they should live in absolute luxury but they should not live in poverty so so those were our, our aims essentially to to restore their honor and restore their comfort in later life and that, well i mean you very much succeeded in in certainly the first part I mean obviously compensation and things but presumably is an ongoing battle but certainly for that first part in terms of expunging the you know the criminal record and, and then the apology from the prime minister were, were there particular ways that you tried to exert pressure on government and what was your sort of experience of of dealing with you know government uh, you know beforehand it may have been not very much but um, and any impressions that you have i suppose of of of, of how to deal with them effectively well, I had a little bit of a starting point. So I came out on the day the ban was lifted in the armed forces and I wrote my first service paper uh, on why we needed to be proactive about EDI in the armed forces, uh, literally a few months later. Uh, and we were talking earlier about the change in the United Kingdom. My service paper went down like a lead balloon uh, I think uh, the Royal Navy's head of personnel, the Second Sea Lord, probably used it to light his fire in the summer of, of 2000. But that didn't change things. And I was um, a fantastically awkward protagonist of, of, of change. And I sent lots of letters to admirals and generals and air marshals and ministers uh, and senior civil servants and stuff. So I'd kind of, I'd learned a bit uh, of, of my trade over those years and put it into place. I think the most important thing was to have community consensus. I'd heard through veteran sources that some of the other campaigns of, of recent years had struggled because the community that they served hadn't been, hadn't operated as a single entity in a single unit. There had been diverging voices and we needed to bring people together. And, and that has been, a strong focus and has allowed us to move very quickly because when the government has heard a voice it's heard one voice uh, and that has been truly amazing uh, now building consensus is really tough because people who have been hurt tend to be understandably focused upon their own personal circumstances and we've needed every veteran to understand the circumstances of their comrades and to recognize that that when we cross the finishing line in this campaign, we must cross it together. Because if we don't, then the government will hear disparate voices and it will become, and those become excuses for not doing the right thing. So every month we have a town hall meeting, literally hundreds of people uh, come along to that. We put out newsletters every month, we put out announcements. I've got community workers across the UK and what they're doing is informing people, getting their opinions, making them feel correctly that they can influence what we do. So what the, there are no geniuses in fighting with pride, but we've got big ears, really big ears. And, um, you know, I listen to the hundreds of voices of the community and make sure that the hopes for the future 
are at the heart of everything that we do. And in doing so, we've kept people on board. So I think that's the starting point is that is that we've been able to demonstrate that we truly represent the community and they're behind us. We sent out a survey to our members in August because we weren't quite sure about their opinion on something. In 48 hours, I got 350 responses to the survey. Uh, It's kind of unheard of uh, when you think about how we all react when we get a survey in our inbox. Um, so, So just really pleasing. Uh, and I think we're we're keeping that that consensus together, and it means that we can be powerful sometimes. Over the uh, autumn, there was a risk of us losing a, a key debate. We went to the veterans and said, "Excuse me, we really need you to get appointments with your MPs." Four hundred went to their MPs and got appointments. It's, it's staggering, and and in consequence, the 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 desired debate. Um, that the government, in honesty, tried to duck will happen uh, in the next six weeks. So, uh, and I, and I think that that means that we can demonstrate to the community that we listen and also that we're affected. The second thing that we needed to do was build consensus amongst our professional stakeholders, and our professional stakeholders are an interesting bunch. So they are the leaders of the military charities and the leaders of the LGBT plus charities. So I'd call that kind of tweed jackets and flowing robes. Um, but we we brought them all together into a room and said, this is everybody's business. Fighting with Pride is not here to be the national depository for LGBT plus veterans. They belong in your organizations, they belong in your communities, but you need to support us to get there. And uh, in the campaign in the autumn, one of the things that we've been most proud of in Fighting with Pride is that we sent an open letter to the Prime Minister signed by the chief executives of both the major military charities and the LGBT plus charities saying that this matter must be done. Uh, and, and I think, again, uh, it's, it's speaking with one voice and making sure that people understand uh, what your message is. And we've tried to be a good partner of in Whitehall. Uh, it's a it's a tr- tricky thing to do. You have to be quite stern sometimes with ministers, but also I need to with Caroline need to recognise what's going on on their side of the table, and be as helpful as we possibly can, and to keep our promises. I think integrity in a campaign is really really important. What happens in politics can be a bit of a swamp sometimes, but what happens in fighting with pride is earnest and true, and that's really important. And did you have any particular sort of political supporters that came along? Because obviously the Armed Forces community does have a number of um, sometimes prominent uh, politicians. Uh, I mean, traditionally, probably mainly in the Conservative Party, but I know that's that's changed over, over recent years as well, particularly in the Labour Party. Uh, now and I think there's a number of candidates that are putting themselves forward, uh, you know, to, for, the, for the next general election. Did you have anybody in there that you could call upon that were uh, good advocates uh, for the campaign? Yeah, we've had a few. We have a few actually, and uh, it's been amazing. So Caroline and I gave evidence to the Select Committee on the Armed Forces Bill in the summer of 2021, and it was a real groundbreaking moment for us. Now the Select Committee is cross-party. So there was Liberals, SNP, Labour and Conservatives around the table. 
And, um, you know, we prepared carefully for it and and we got ourselves into the right mental space. We needed to to tell a pretty grim story. And uh, and we did. Uh, and, and I think it was a it was a really emotional uh, evidence giving. And I think the all parties uh, that attended um, that select committee hearing were visibly moved by what they heard about the experiences of, of these veterans. And I think at that event, Dan Carden was there uh, from Labour. He's the MP for Wallasey. He's been an amazing supporter from the very beginning. Uh, incredible. Luke Pollard, uh, a Plymouth MP for Labour. Fantastic. And Kevin Jones, uh, again, Labour. Absolutely brilliant. Johnny Mercer, uh, the... Um, well, I was about to say the Veterans Minister in the Cabinet, obviously. I mean, he's been the minister and not the minister, and then the minister again, and then not the minister, and he is the minister again. <laughs> it's a bit hokey-cokey where it comes to uh, Johnny Mercer and his role in government, I think, isn't it? It, it is, it is. But, you know, the man has uh, integrity, uh, and uh, he has supported us, I think, of late. He's challenged by the numbers, um, and uh, we're giving him a little bit of a push, along with uh, Dr. Andrew Morrison, the Minister for Veterans in the MOD. Uh, but, you know, uh, we know at their hearts they want to do the right thing. Uh, it's just that at times governments need encouragement to achieve that. And we're, we're really happy to offer that encouragement when it's needed. So, uh, so yeah, we, we've yeah. had fantastic political support. It's been brilliant. And in Scotland as well, incredible that... Uh, just before Christmas, the Scottish Parliament debated reparations and offered fantastic support to our cause. It really does help to have the devolved parliaments pushing, pushing, pushing. Yeah, I know. I think you're right. And often overlooked uh, in campaigning more generally. Look, we all were a little bit guilty of, of concentrating on Westminster, the UK government. But actually, the reality is that not all issues are dealt with solely or, or at all sometimes, but solely by Westminster. You know, a lot of issues, are, you know, can be dealt with and are dealt with very effectively by Wales and Scotland and, you know, and all the one should the assembly sit and uh, old mayors or whatever it happens to be, at, at, you know, for various issues as, as well. And there does come a pressure, I think, you're right, there does come a pressure sometimes when Westminster politicians can see Scotland and Wales, you know, making the running and doing something and being ahead of uh, of a challenge that does apply a little bit of pressure on them to to, to get up to speed and, and to do something as well. So, um, yeah, politics. I mean, we were very determined from the beginning to be a UK-wide organisation. And I think uh, the Scottish uh, Veterans Minister and the Welsh Veterans Minister, uh, Hannah Blethyn, have been amazing supporters. And I'm, I'm very proud that uh, later in January, for the very first time, the Fighting with Pride clan, all of our trustees and all our executive will be together for the first time and that's going to happen at Edinburgh Castle uh, and I'm really pleased that it's happening in Scotland because Scotland has willed us on our way and given us a really good shove to the front which is fantastic. I would imagine that'll be a, a, a bit of a, a bit of a do as they say. Uh, I, yeah I, I suppose it'll be a Kaylee. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I used to do a few of those when I was in Aberdeen, but I, unfortunately, I was, my dancing skills aren't very good. I'm not very good at explaining how to do the moves either, if, even if I can remember them. Uh, sadly. So, um, to, to looking to the future, I mean, you've achieved a huge amount. 
you know, in a you know relatively short space of time. But as you say, there are still challenges to to come um, around compensation and, and other issues as well. How 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 do you keep that pressure going though? Because again, we're the best one in the world. You know, once you've you talked about some of the very moving examples from the select committee, without being rude, you know, the media can lose interest. Politicians can lose interest once they've heard those stories. Sometimes, you know, once or twice. By the third time, it's going to sound incredibly condescending, but they come a little bit immune to them. It loses some of the resonance, some of the power. How how do you, as the you know, you and Caroline, as you know, continuing to push for these issues? How do you keep it going? Well, our media strategy has always been to put the widest possible range of people in front of the national press, if they're comfortable in doing so. And uh, we've put literally hundreds of of, of veterans uh, in front of radio, television and, and news media to tell their stories. And I think I think that does help. It allows it means that uh, when politicians and when the general public see stories they see them for the first time you can you can kind of tell sometimes when somebody's told their story a lot um but when it's fresh and it's visceral uh and and it tells of of ongoing hurt and pain then i think it does have a human impact and that that really does win support so so i think that's uh that's really important i think mr bates will help us a little bit uh, Mr. Bates versus the post office has, has been an amazing way of bringing into uh, the public consciousness, the, the national public consciousness, what has happened. Uh, and I very much hope that uh, that breaks the barriers down towards proper compensation, because at the moment, the compensation that has been offered by the government in this case is is inadequate uh, and perhaps some of those uh, affected by this policy are looking at 15 or 20,000 pounds for 40 or 50 years of pain and anguish and distress in their lives. So I think it really is important that we win the public support for something better being done. And, and of course, if we look at the circumstances uh, of, of the postmasters who are extremely deserving, and I think the the country understands that. So they were unfairly arrested. They were tried. They were sent to prison. They were vilified. They were often estranged from families and friends. It sounds like a very familiar story to me. So what happened to the veterans? And of course, our veterans um, served our country often in battle. I can think of two amazing veterans who I've spoken to recently, both one of whom served in the Falklands, one served in the first Gulf War, and both of whom served prison sentences on their return from operations. It's, it's quite shocking. It is, it's, it is absolutely shocking. I mean, and yeah, you, you reflect and it just seems like a completely, in some sense, alien concept that this would have happened. But that that that's the reality. That's that's the stories that you're helping people to to convey um and uh, yeah i mean that the whole post office and, and that program um i mean it's only just gone out as we record this podcast it's only gone out relatively recently but but um you can tell that that, that has started a national conversation in the way that the, you know the issues have been around for a number of years but unless you read you know computer weekly and private eye and and others you may or may not been aware now everybody's aware of the sheer scale of the 
one has to choose one's words carefully, but, you know, the sheer scale of the issue. Yeah, I mean, I think what it's done is it's changed people's mindsets on compensation because sometimes we think, oh, compensation, here we go again. But when you actually get the opportunity to see how how experiences like that have wrecked lives and the injustice of it and, and how the I think that, that program has very effectively got across how injustice can hamper people from ever moving on in life and how justice can change things for the future. So, so I think, you know, I really, we will keep, I think for the future, our business plan is to, um, to fight on with absolute vigor uh, because it's really important that we get this right and we get this done. No, that's fantastic to hear. And, and, and during the course of the campaign and, and maybe in your previous i was gonna say career but careers i think probably the more accurate way uh, to say it, craig is have you been given any good advice that you know that you've been able to apply to to the campaign over the last um you know couple of years and and going forward as well you know i think the thing that um that always strikes in my mind is that you never know when you're going to get lucky look luck can have such an incredible uh impact and i think i was told by a lovely old captain of mine years ago, to be ready for luck. And when you get it, be ready to accelerate quickly. I I had a turning point in, in my campaign for the serving communities when I, I was having a very angry Saturday because I'd been given a warning for being too outspoken in the week by an, a very senior admiral. But I'd got tickets to go to Troop in the Colour and I sat down in my seat on the Saturday at Troop in the Colour with my husband. And there was a lovely old fellow in the chair next to me who I didn't know. And he said, hello, Commander. How's your week been? And I was absolutely foaming. I, there was steam coming out of my ears. And I said, well, sir, since you asked, <laughs> it's been bloody appalling. And, and he said, well, listen, I've watched this pageantry 30 times. You tell me all about it. And I spent an hour and a half talking to this gentleman about about why what the what the armed forces was doing with LGBT plus people was fundamentally wrong. And he said, well, I think you're probably right. And he turned out to be Lord Armstrong of Ilminster. I wouldn't have known the name in 2004 when I met him, uh, but he was the most important uh, civil servant of the second half of the 20th century, cabinet secretary to Margaret Thatcher. Uh, and, a, and a true statesman. And two weeks later, I found myself at Leeds Castle with the then First Sea Lord, Admiral Lord West of Spithead, with the opportunity to talk to him for two days uh, about why things weren't right. Uh, and I think that was pure luck. I just happened to be in the right seat in Horse Guards Parade on the right day. Uh, but Literally within months of, of meeting First Sea Lord, we were the first armed force in the world to march in uniform at Pride. We'd formed employee uh, network groups. Policies were changing, uh, and it was an incredible change. So, so be ready for luck. I think is my is what I'd say. And when you find luck, grab it and run. I think that's fantastic advice. And uh, look, well, here's to uh, a hard work, but be a little sprinkling of um stardust and luck uh over the top of that as well um craig thank you very much for your time uh on the podcast um it's been 
hugely fascinating, uh, but I, I'm sure deeply rewarding for, for me having this conversation, but for those uh, uh, listening as well. Thank you very much. Thank you, Stuart. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you.